BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. And just a heads up on Saturday night, if you happen to be in New York City, I will be with uh, Scott Carter at the Cherry Lane Theater. For Scott's play, Scott is the executive producer of the Bill Maher Show, Real Time with Bill Maher, and he's a playwright and a brilliant one. And he wrote this play titled Discord, The Gospel According to Thomas Jefferson, Charles Dickens, and Count Leo Tolstoy. And for each one of the weekly performances, he's invited somebody to join him at the theater to have a conversation about the play and about the issues raised in the play afterwards. And that will be me this Saturday, Saturday night in New York City at the Cherry Lane Theater. And uh, there's an article about it over at uh, Daily Beast by Tim Tiemann titled How Scott Carter Spends Real Time with Bill Maher and Charles Dickens. And so, you know, if you're interested and uh, if you want to see me in New York, that, that's when and how and where to do it. It would be this Saturday night to, what, three nights hence? And uh, at, the, uh, at the Cherry Lane Theater. And you can get all the information. Like I said, there's a great article about it over at Daily Beast. I wanted to talk to you about oligarchy and fascism. In my opinion, oligarchy and fascism are are basically two words to describe the same thing. Fascism is a modern form of oligarchy. But, you know, and in fact, the word was theoretically invented by Mussolini in the 1920s. And although Giovanni Gentile is actually probably the guy who came up with it. He was uh, Mussolini's ghostwriter. But the idea of fascism is basically the merger of corporate and state interests. And Ganesh Sitaraman has a fascinating article in The Guardian today in which Ganesh is looking at two different books on oligarchy and, and literally books on oligarchy from the Greek era, which is where the word, literally the word was invented by the Greeks. And, you know, it means rule by the rich. And he starts out by pointing out that in a democracy, you can't literally have an oligarchy because in a democracy, the people would recognize that the oligarchs were not behaving in their best interests and would vote the bums out, which makes perfect sense. So then the question is, how is it that the wealthy control so much of our government, right? How is it that that big drug companies are basically running the Food and Drug Administration? How is it the big ag companies are basically running the U.S. Department of Agriculture? How is it that, you know, big fossil fuel companies are running the Environmental Protection Agency? I mean, all of these things, step by step by step, all of these things go back to corporate takeover of government functions, which is the description of both fascism and oligarchy. So he looks at two books. The first is by Matthew Simonton. It's called Classical Greek Oligarchy. And uh, Simonton makes several points. Number one, that if the elites want to stay in power, they need solidarity among themselves. And, you know, we're seeing this in, for example, the Koch network, where the Koch brothers bring together several hundred billionaires and multimillionaires 
couple of times a year and and you know they all travel in basically the same circles and uh, share a similar culture and values and so there's there's this elite solidarity uh, he notes while the ruling class must remain united for an oligarchy to remain in power, the people must also be divided so they cannot overthrow their oppressors. And notes that, uh, you know, how oligarchs in ancient Greece held their power. He says they gave rewards to informants and found pliable citizens to take positions in the government. Well, how is that different than putting Scott Pruitt in charge of the EPA when Scott Pruitt is, you know, obviously a pliable guy? He's been taking money from the fossil fuel industry most of his political career. And he's been dancing to the tune of the fossil fuel industry. And now he's running the Environmental Protection Agency. This is exactly what they were describing was happening in Greece 3,000 years ago when the oligarchs took over. What those collaborators do, he says, is legitimize the regime and give the oligarchs a beachhead into the people. Because, you know, they go on TV, they go on radio, they sound very reasonable. Oh, we're trying to help out the average working man with this tax cut program. Or, or we're trying to, you know, make sure that our children are safe by cutting the EPA. And, you know, I mean, it's just, you know, lie through their teeth. But people, it's stuff people want to hear. He adds oligarchs control the public spaces and the livelihoods to prevent the people from organizing. This is in ancient Greece. What do we have today? You got, was it Zuccotti Park? It was one of the parks in New York that Occupy took over. Uh, turns out it was owned by a private corporation and they kicked them out. The, the public spaces around the United States increasingly are being owned by oligarchs. And in fact, that's Ryan Zinke's major project is to take public lands and privatize them, sell them off to the oligarchs. And livelihoods, he says, you know, the way that oligarchy holds its power is by the oligarchs controlling the livelihoods of the people. Well, you know, when you allow this massive consolidation that we've had since Reagan stopped enforcing the Sherman Antitrust Act in 1982, when you, when you look at that massive consolidation, what do you see? Smaller and smaller number of companies controlling a larger and larger number of workers. You know, for every Walmart that goes into a community, on average, according to some studies, 100 to 120 local businesses go out of business. So instead of 120 potential employers or actual employers that the people in the community have, it becomes one. And that one employer won't allow a union. In fact, the one Walmart that voted to unionize in Canada, Walmart shut the store down. So this is you know, another example of how oligarchs control the populace. They also tried to keep ordinary people dependent on individual oligarchs for their economic survival. And he talks about how the fragmentation of our media platforms is a modern instantiation of dividing the public sphere, or how employees or workers are sometimes chilled from speaking out. The most interesting discussion, he notes, this is in the article uh, by Ganesh Sitaraman in The Guardian today. The most interesting discussion is how ancient olig oligarchs used information to preserve their regime. They combined secrecy and governance with selective messages, messaging to targeted audiences, which is exactly what Trump is doing. And in fact, you know, the whole the whole Robert Mercer and his company, you know, and those the, uh, the or companies that that do all this sorting and and finding individual voters and Cambridge Analytica and all this. This is how they can, at the same time, these oligarchs sought to destroy monuments that were symbols of democratic success. Now, what would be a symbol of democratic success? Oh, the interstate highway project, public roads, public bridges, transportation, um, anything dedicated in the name of the people. And instead, what the oligarchs did is they made sure that very little money was being spent on supporting the people by the government, but they themselves turned to philanthropy. The result, the people would appreciate the elite spending on these projects and the upper class would get their names memorialized for all times. After all, who could be against oligarchs who show such generosity? And then the other book that he looked at was Jeffrey Winter's book, Oligarchy. And he says that the key to oligarchy is to set, have a set of elites, that the, the elites have enough material resources to spend on securing their status and interests. Part of that is uh, property defense, which means pushing for low taxes. At its core, he writes, oligarchy involves concentrating economic power and using it for political purposes. 
He talks about four different kinds of oligarchies and all this sort of stuff. But basically, that's, that's the bottom line. Well, this is what Vice President Henry Wallace said back in 1944 about American fascists. He said they claimed to be super patriots, but they would destroy every liberty guaranteed by the Constitution. They demand free enterprise, but they are the spokesman for monopoly invested interests. Their final objective toward which all their deceit is directed is to capture political power. So they're using the power of the state, the power of the market simultaneously. Hold on. This is the Tom Hartman program. So that using the power of the state and the market simultaneously, they may keep the common man in eternal subjection. Common Dreams titled Warnings of Big Pharma Coup. Sean, I've got music in my ear really loud. Okay. Warnings of Big Pharma Coup as Trump considers drug executive for health secretary. Uh, Trump has decided to cut out the middleman and let the pharmaceutical, a pharmaceutical executive, literally run the health department. Right, Jake, Jake Jans, uh, Johnson for commondreams.org. And this, you know, it starts, he starts it out with a quote from, um, from Public Citizen, and Public Citizen wrote, just days after denouncing out-of-control drug prices, President Donald Trump appears set to show he doesn't mean it by naming a former pharmaceutical company executive to run the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. This is HHS. This is Tom Price's old job. Tom Price, who resigned because he was taking all these fancy jet trips all over the place. He's in charge of Medicare and Medicaid and all that stuff. Well, they're going to put in his place a guy who's a drug industry executive. In his public statements, this is from Robert Weissman, uh, from Public Citizen. He's the, he's the president of Public Citizen. He says, in his public statements, Alex Azar, that's the guy that Trump is probably going to be appointing. Now, this is the, the public word here. Alex Azar has made clear that he is opposed to measures to restrain drug company profiteering and limit improper marketing and favors weaker drug safety approval standards. Azar spent a decade as an executive with the pharma giant Eli Lilly, where he directed this company's sales operations. So what, what is this? When, industry, when, when a pharmaceutical industry executive is put in charge of the agency that regulates the pharmaceutical industry, or at, at, actually HHS, I don't know if, um, if FDA is part of HHS, I'm, I'm not certain, but whether it is or it isn't, HHS is buying the products in a big way, buying the products of the pharmaceutical industry. And so how is it that, that this happens? Well, this is called oligarchy. And as Henry Wallace, the vice president of the United States, FDR's last vice president, his third vice president, excuse me, his last vice president was uh, Harry Truman. His, he was his second vice president. Truman was his third. And uh, what Henry Wallace wrote for the New York Times on April 9th, 1944, was the really day, because the New York Times asked him, are there fascists in America? If so, who are they and should we be worried? And keep in mind, this was right before the end of World War II. So we were actively fighting fascists in Asia and in Europe. So Henry Wallace writes, the really dangerous American fascists are not those who are hooked up directly or indirectly with the Axis. That's, you know, with the Germans and the Japanese. The FBI has its finger on those. He said the American fascists would prefer not to use violence. His method is to poison the channels of public information. With a fascist, the problem is never how best to present the truth to the public, but how best to use the news to deceive the public into giving the fascist and his group more money or more power. Henry Wallace went on to say, Vice President of the United States, Henry Wallace, went on to say in April 9th, 1944 in the New York Times, if we define an American fascist as one who in case of conflict puts money and power ahead of human beings, then there are undoubtedly several million fascists in the United States. There are probably several hundred thousand if we narrow the definition to include only those who in their search for money and power are ruthless and deceitful. Shades of a uh, New York real estate developer. There are probably several hundred thousand, he says, if, if we narrow it to ruthless and deceitful. He said, they are patriotic in time of war because it's in their interest to be so. But in time of peace, they follow power and the dollar wherever they may lead. I would say that they're still doing that during time of war. 
goes on to say, American fascism will not really be dangerous until there is a purposeful coalition among the cartelists, cartelists, however you say that word, the deliberate poisoners of public information. A purposeful coalition. This is what Lewis Powell called for in 1971 in the Powell memo. Some would argue that this is what the Koch brothers have put together with the Koch network and with ALEC and all the things associated with it, Americans for Prosperity and whatnot, bringing together billionaires. Henry Wallace wrote, fascism is a worldwide disease, but its greatest threat to the United States will come after the war and will manifest itself within the United States itself. Still another danger is represented, this is, this is Vice President Henry Wallace, still another danger is represented by those who paying lip service to democracy and the common welfare in their insatiable greed for money and the power which money gives do not hesitate surreptitiously to evade the laws designed to safeguard the public from monopolistic extortion. American fascists of this stamp were clandestinely aligned with their German counterparts before the war and are even now preparing to resume where they left off after the pleasant the current, the present unpleasantness ceases. In other words, World War II. He says, some big businesses are willing to just jeopardize the structure of American liberty in order to gain some temporary advantage. Monopolists who fear competition and who distrust democracy because it stands for equal opportunity would like to secure their position against small and energetic enterprise, small and energetic companies. In an effort to eliminate the possibility of any rival growing up, some monopolists would sacrifice democracy itself sacrifice democracy itself he said he's talking about the symptoms of fascist thinking he says always and everywhere they can be identified by their appeal to prejudice and the desire to play upon the fears and vanities of different groups in order to gain power it is no coincidence that the growth of modern tyrants has in every case been heralded by the growth of prejudice wow this is an old playbook Trump. The Trump uh, regime is playing. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. Call 202-808-9925. Are we there yet? Is it a fascist takeover of America? Let's discuss it after the break. Hey, Tom Hartman here with the Tom Hartman program. You know I'm serious about my health, and so I'm doing something for it. You've heard me talking about Super Beets. I'm drinking Super Beets, circulation superfood powder that helps support my heart and healthy blood pressure, too. I have amazing energy, amazing stamina as well. The New York Times calls beets fitness in a glass. With Super Beets, I get all the benefits without the bad taste or added sugar. Mix it in water or a smoothie for a jitter-free energy boost. You'll love the taste of Super Beets and feel results in as little as 20 minutes guaranteed of your money back. Try the original berry or black cherry. I like them both. If you haven't tried it yet, now is the time. Only for the summer, you can try Super Beets, maybe the early fall here. Try Super Beets for only $5.95. Here's how. Call now and get a free box of Super Beats with 10 packets to try and feel the results. Plus two free indicator strips for monitoring your nitric oxide levels before and after taking Super Beats. It's just $5.95. You'll love the results guaranteed. More energy, more stamina, support healthy circulation. What are you waiting for? Call 800-568-9889. That's 800-568-9889. Or go to TomsBeats.com. That's TomsBeats.com. Welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you and your thoughts on where we're at in this arc of the spectrum of oligarchy and tyranny and fascism and whatnot. Robert in Forest Grove, Oregon. Hey, Robert, what's on your mind today? Uh, thank you for taking my call, Tom. Uh, really appreciate how you educate uh, all of us. Uh, sometimes uh, the, the uh, German philosopher Goethe said sometimes the hardest things to see are the things that lie right in front of our eyes. Sure. And you talk about, somebody calls you at your show and says, what is the role of the government? Uh, if you look at the preamble of our Constitution, it's a beautiful sentence. There's seven elements to the preamble. Right. And we Democrats and progressives, we believe in all seven. If you go through them real quick, we the people, that means we're a democracy, that means that we govern by consensus. That means that the vote is sacred. Uh, in order to form a more perfect union, we have to hang together or hang separately. Establish justice. Maybe that's the most important. The rule of law, rights, a sense of fairness. Ensure domestic tranquility, which is public safety. Provide for the common defense, which is common, means everybody's involved in our defense. And then promote the general welfare. There's argument about what that is, 
and then secure the blessings of liberty to posterity. Posterity means future generations, which means stewardship. That means taking care of the planet. Now, I would add, as a progressive, another one other thing. <laughs> we believe in science. But it's, it's a beautiful sentence. And I think if, if the progressives and the Democrats would, would look at that, um, it makes sense of what we believe now, that the conservatives only believe in two of those things. Yeah. And they if only the Supreme the Court would look at tranquility. it. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And very, very well said. Nice, nice, nice rant, Robert. Uh, excellent rant and, and, and very well said. And, and this is the this is the tragedy of, of our current situation is that not only do Republicans not recognize or conservatives not recognize the majority of the purposes for which this Constitution was ordained, but uh, the, the Supreme Court itself doesn't recognize it. And this, I mean, the, 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 the oligarchic takeover that we have right now is in large part a result of an 1886 Supreme Court decision that gave corporations way too much power. Uh, you know, the, the, actually, the decision didn't do this, but the head note did, which is a whole nother long discussion. Um, but uh, an 1886 decision, Santa Clara County versus Southern Pacific Railroad, and a 1976 decision, Buckley versus Vallejo. Um, which said that uh, billionaires and big corporations owning politicians, and thank you, Robert, for the call, very well said, owning politicians was not bribery, was not you know inappropriate, was somehow just free speech in the First Amendment, after all. Doesn't the First Amendment protect the right of billionaires to own politicians? Well, according to the Supreme Court, it actually does. By the way, speaking of this whole fascism thing, Representative Pat Tabiri of Ohio resigned his seat today and just just today it was announced but what's he going to do right what what happens when a republican member of congress leaves congress they look around and they say okay i i did your tune you know i danced to your tune for years and years now what are you going to do for me and uh, he's getting a gig on the ohio business roundtable now the business roundtable john snow used to run this the federal one the national one uh, it's 200 of the largest corporations in America, and their CEOs sit on the roundtable. Presumably, the state business roundtables are run the same way. They're just the biggest corporations in the state. And so, you know, he goes from being a legislator to being basically, a, you know, another lobbyist. Uh, Dr. Danielle in Saudi Daisy, Tennessee. Hey, Dr. Danielle, what's up? Hey there, Tom. How are you today? Good. What's on your mind? So I just wanted to call in and say thank you so much for giving a voice to people out there who currently don't have one and for really protecting the elements of democracy. I have uh, decided to run for U.S. Congress in the 3rd District of Tennessee, and I'm a family medicine physician who has really seen the struggles of what our nation and Tennesseans are facing right now. We have out-of-control health care costs. There is no fair market in health care right now. And we also have people who are falling off the cliff into financial devastation. The state of Tennessee is number one in the nation for filings of bankruptcy. And the number one cause now of personal filings of bankruptcy is health care. Right. And so when we sit here and we talk about how we're about to nominate somebody to the Department of Health and Human Services who is opposed to controlling the out-of-control costs of drug prices in our nation, that goes against everybody's interest. I don't care if you're Democrat, Republican, or independent. People experience financial hardship, and healthcare is one of the biggest things right now putting people into that hardship. So, Dr. Danielle, for people who might want to support your candidacy or just learn more about it, what's the website? What where do people go? www.mitchell, M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L, for, and that's the number for, congress.com. That's mitchell4congress.com. Okay, so presumably your name is Danielle Mitchell? Yes. Yeah, okay. And mitchell4congress.com. Cool. Dr. Danielle, uh, you know, call in from time to time. Let us know how it's going, okay? Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Great. Thank you. And, and I wish you the very best of luck. Anybody who's willing to run for office, I, you know, I salute. That's, I do not have the courage to do that. I'm really impressed. Jeff in San Francisco. Hey, Jeff, what's on your mind today? Well, right now I'm reading. Um, uh, Jeff, it sounds like you're talking from the bottom of a soup can. Can you, can you take me off speakerphone, please? Now? Sorry about that. Yeah, that's quite all right. 
All right. Um, yeah, I'm reading Howard Zinn's book, um, you know, the uh, People's History. History. And he talks on one of these pages, uh, Toss Beer, this guy named Beer was quoted saying, the makers of the Constitution had some direct economic interest establishing a strong federal government. The manufacturers needed protective tariffs. The next one I think is most important is the money lender wanted to stop the use of paper money to pay off debts. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the, the banks are one of the biggest things stopping us and directing us towards, uh, to, you know, fascism. I think debt is, that, debt, to... debt is one of the biggest tools of, of oppression. I mean, it, it historically has been, and it certainly is now in the United States. And, you know, you, you see young people who are unable to start businesses, unable to start families, for that matter, because they have so much debt, uh, you know, coming out of college. Well, yeah, I'm going to my town hall uh, this Saturday. Anybody in San Francisco, um, King is holding a uh, town hall at West Portal Elementary School in West Portal, part of the city. And I'm going to go bring up a public bank for California. We just didn't re- can we just reenact a bill that we've had in the past, which was AB 750 uh, for public banking? It hmm. didn't pass in 2011. Would that be a, a way to bring? I've got some signs. I'm going to have people sign up for yeah. uh, to get together some town. Um, yeah, some, public banking is know. a is a great and powerful thing. Ellen Brown has written about this over at webofdebt.com and at some length and for some time, and she's been a guest on this program too. And the fact of the matter is California is probably sending hundreds of millions of dollars in profits every year to New York banks, to the Wall Street banks, for handling their money. And they can handle their own money. They can create their own bank. So you said Representative King, Jeff, uh, in the San Francisco area. King. I don't know who that is. I forget his first name. Phil Ting. Phil, Phil King. T-I-N-G. And uh, so I'm going to go there, get some people, uh, you know, educated about this. I actually printed up one of uh, Ellen's articles about how we could have paid for uh, the, uh, the Bay Bridge cost $13 billion. If we would have used our own money, it could have been like $6.5 billion right. by 50%. Yeah. Well done. And, and well I don't said. know how many people are aware of this. Yeah, so. and most people are not aware of it. And good on you, Jeff, for raising that. Jeff, thanks a lot for the call, and, and let us know how it goes. Alan in, uh, in Crown Point, Indiana. Hey, Alan, what's on your mind today? Yes. Uh, hi there. Henry Wallace was a rather interesting figure. He developed hybrid seed corn and did a lot of agricultural aspects. Yeah. Also, he was asked to resign by President Truman because of the stand uh, against our strong stand on Russia. That leads me into my question to you, uh, Mr. Hartman. How would, if you were president, how would you handle North Korea? I would. I would try to engage them in negotiations. I don't think that the North Korean regime is unstable. I don't think that they're crazy. Uh, the, you know, the Kim is running a form of government that I would never want to live under, and I don't even support the existence of, but I think it's a waste of our time, money, and ultimately of our blood and treasure uh, to, to try and take him out. I mean, this is something that, that you know, time will resolve, I, I believe. And uh, that we should be. And, and by the way, the, the position that I'm articulating here is also the position that the president of South Korea holds. Uh, the president of South Korea, uh, it's President Park, I believe, is the new president, is is outspoken about how South Korea should be negotiating with North Korea and the United States rather than saber rattling. Makes sense, Alan? You know, it makes sense to me, Tom, is how about dealing with the people of North Korea? Telling that we'll help feed them, or is there a diplomatic sense to try to go to the people? Well, there's know, no there's no mechanism to go to the people of North Korea because their internet is completely shut down. Their their uh, telephone, excuse me, their radio and television are completely shut down. Um, the people who live toward the south might be able to pick up broadcasts from South Korea, but they get punished severely if they do. So I, I, I don't think that that's an option right now. But if we could, the more we can open up North Korea, this is the same argument that has been made about Cuba ever since the, you know, the 60s. And, and that is that if we can open them up, that that increases the probability that they're going to become a democratic society, small d democratic society. Alan, thanks for the call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. The president of South Korea's moon, I said park, and my, my apologies. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back. Ed, talk to California. Um, I just want to tell you, you know, I'm really upset with this idea of it. Remember when we, there was a big fight and everybody and the Republicans kept saying, especially under Reagan, too much welfare, international welfare. We give too much money away. Right. And mainly it was, the, the money we gave away was food for peace. It started under uh, John F. K. uh Right. Uh, I can't think of his name right now. Uh, is the one that ran Sergeant Shriver? For, yeah, McGovern. And and it was that was the greatest thing in the world. You couldn't go into a third world country and have people bitch about the United States. They thought we were wonderful. Even in North Korea, they knew we were feeding them. China, they knew we were feeding. Them. Yep. They knew they got fed in their, food in their stomachs because of this. And it was done to, with subsidies to, to small farms, 160, 360 acres, 320, different numbers, uh, got different kinds of things. And it was from those farm vote, the farmers. And it was look, small farms. Mm. And Reagan took all those subsidies to get rid of this national, this welfare for internationally, which was food mainly, which was the biggest thing we gave you was food. It wasn't money it was food it wasn't arms it was food yep. and you kept people's tummies fed and this world progressed it was going somewhere we also but with the peace corps we out we got to get rid of this it's it's costing us too much money and everything else well it's much higher it, it, it was much higher within a couple of years because of arms we started giving people yeah. it's much more expensive to fight wars than it is to pass out food you're absolutely right at it and the other thing that the peace corps did and that the, the Sar- sergeant shriver and the kennedy family put together the other thing that the Peace Corps did and, and you know, that whole, that whole era of food for peace was we helped build schools in underdeveloped countries. We helped build civic in- infrastructure, the institutions of democracy. We helped prepare them for a, a small D democratic future. And that was a, a great and noble thing. Ed, I got to move along, but excellent point. Well said. Thank you very much. Jake in Las Vegas. Hey, Jake, what's on your mind? Uh, I don't know why Henry Wallace wasn't on the 1944 ticket as vice president. What, what happened on that? What happened, as best I've been able to uh, understand, and I've only read one book on this, and that was probably 15 years ago. So, you know, forgive me if I don't have all the details correctly on this. But my understanding is that uh, Henry Wallace was uh, an unabashedly uh, progressive uh, democratic socialist. He embraced democratic socialism. He was, he was Bernie Sanders in the White House. Um, he was to the left of FDR. And so when they went into the 1944 convention, the bankers and the big business interests did not like Henry Wallace at all. They wanted to get rid of him, and they wanted to replace him with a guy that they figured would be manageable. And so they picked this haberdasher, a guy who owned a hat store or a clothing store, uh, which is what they used to call a haberdashery. Uh, they, they, they picked this guy who owned a clothing store in Missouri named Harry Truman, who everybody thought, you know, hey, he's innocuous. He's, you know, he's not the brightest bulb in the tree. Uh, you know, he'll do exactly what we want, et cetera, et cetera. And, they, and so they made Harry Truman FDR's vice president over FDR's objections, certainly over Henry Wallace's objections. And it was a last minute thing, too, as I recall. It was like done in a, a day or two at the convention. And uh, everybody got whiplash from it. But that's what happened. And thus, Henry Wallace, uh, in fact, Henry Wallace then went back to work for the government in the Truman administration, as I recall, in the agriculture department. Henry Wallace's expertise was in farming. And uh, now this part I'm not, I'm absolutely not certain of, uh, you know, what he exactly did when he went back to work for the government. But he, he continued to participate. So, you know, good guy and, and played a good role. Jake, thanks for the call. Chuck in Willow Springs, Illinois. Hey, Chuck, what's on your mind? Hello, Tom. It's a pleasure talking to you. Thanks, and Beck. It's Hatch. very interesting, all the subjects you touch on. And I'm really proud of that lady down there in Tennessee. I hope she makes it. Yeah, Dr. Daniel. I need to too. know a couple things. We're so close, and I, I feel that we're at a turning point in this country. All right? And the power that these people have, the Democrats are really hurting. All right? We have to get these people out and force because that's our numbers. And that's all I have to say. Yeah, well, let me let me just add to that. There is a, a, a remarkable piece that Ari Berman wrote 
that is in the uh, the nation, as I recall. No, no, it's in Mother Jones, excuse me, Mother Jones, by R.A. Berman. It's titled Rigged, How Voter Suppression Threw Wisconsin to Trump. And basically he goes through, you know, these. he starts it out with the story of this 37-year-old black woman, this African-American woman, who uh, had lost her driver's license, uh, but, you know, had her old driver's license, had her voter registration card, had proof that she actually lived where she lived, she was registered to vote, uh, all that kind of stuff. And which in, in previous elections would give you plenty of easy opportunity to go in and vote. You, you just have to prove who you are, even if your license is expired. Hey, this is who I am. You see my picture on it? Yeah, it expired six months ago, but I don't own a car. I don't drive. So here's my photo ID issued by a government. Well, under the new law in Wisconsin, you may only vote if your ID is current. Now, that was passed largely to prevent older people, people on Social Security, people who care about Social Security and Medicare from voting. And because they're more likely to let the driver's licenses lapse. And this was to prevent them from voting. And there's, uh, you know, Donald Trump won Wisconsin by, I think, around 15,000 votes. But it looks like uh, there was a 41,000 decrease in voters. And uh, largely due to the uh, photo ID requirements. So the, and, and, and where did that, where did that hit? Uh, voter ID turnout decreased by 1.7% in the three states that adopted stricter voter ID laws, but increased by 1.3% in states where ID laws did not change. Wisconsin's turnout dropped 3.3%. If Wisconsin had seen the same turnout increase as states whose laws stayed the same, quote, we estimate that over 200,000 more voters would have voted in Wisconsin in 2016. These lost voters who voted in 2012 and 2014, but were not allowed to vote in 2016, skewed more African-American and more Democratic than the overall voting population. And uh, they, they, Charles Stewart at MIT says 16 million people, 12% of all voters, encountered at least one problem voting in the last election. More than a million lost votes. And in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Trump won by a grand total in those three states of 78,000 voters, uh, votes, and hundreds of thousands of people were prevented from voting in those three states. You're listening to Tom Hartman. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And on the line with us is our friend, Dr. Richard Wolf, the economist, co-founder of Democracy and Work at Work, author most recently of Capitalism Crisis, Capitalism's Crisis Deepens, Essays on the Global Economic Meltdown, democracyatwork.info or rdwolf with two fs.com are the websites. Uh, you can tweet him at Prof Wolf, P-R-O-F-W-O-L-F-F, or Democracy at W-R-K. Uh, Dr. Wolf, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Tom. Glad that I could make it and be here with you. Me too. Me too. So Catalonia, a, a, a province, a region, a state in Spain, is uh, with, a, with a slightly separate language and, and culture, they would, the Catalans would argue, um, has decided, uh, you know, or has had this, this referendum, this plebiscite, whatever you would call it, the, saying, you know, let's, let's basically secede from Spain. And Spain now is saying, no, we're not going let, to let this go down. Uh, tell us your take on this. I mean, is this like the Confederacy pulling away from the United States? Is this, a, uh, is this like the breakup of the Soviet Union with the Eastern Bloc countries uh, declaring independence? I mean, what's, what's going on here? What, what, what do we need to know about this? Well, I think the, the best way to understand it is that, like most countries in the world, our own included, there are strong regional differences. Some of them go back for centuries, um, and they have always existed. But let's say for the last hundred years, or nearly so, uh, they've been contained in most countries, one way or another. Uh, in Spain, actually, they had a vicious, really gut-wrenching civil war back in the 1930s, so they've had more of a kind of tension within themselves. But all countries, to some extent, have that. The problem is, if you subject a society to severe tensions, strains, setbacks, and particularly if they reach down deep into the economy, 
you upset people in such a way that they become frightened about the future, they become anxious about the present, and they start asking questions and looking for answers beyond what the conventions of the society uh, typically allowed. And what often happens then is they rediscover things they don't like about other parts of the country they are a part of. They begin to cleave to their own national or sometimes ethnic group in the hopes that somehow that will get them through these hard times more easily. With that in your mind, here's the story with Spain. Like Greece, and almost as bad, the crash, the global capitalist crash of 2008, really devastated the Spanish economy, and it really hasn't recovered. For most of the last decade, they have had unemployment in the range of 15 to 25 percent. I mean, this is, means that every single family in Spain has had one or more members out of work, therefore using up whatever little savings they might have had, getting closer and closer to desperation. The value of housing, for example, in Spain collapsed because it was overloaded with debt and so on. It put the Spanish people through the ringer. And what that did was to provoke among the Catalonian people in a relatively well-off northeastern part of Spain, around Barcelona, a rediscovery that maybe they would be better able to get through very hard times if they took care of themselves and were disconnected from the uh, central Spanish government, which, to say it as politely as I know how, has been a conservative government that thought that the way to handle the global crash was with the kind of austerity policies that have provoked people to do all kinds of unusual political things. It provoked the British working people to vote for Brexit, to leave Europe. It has provoked in Eastern Europe a kind of return to right-wing governments in Poland, in, in Hungary, and so on. It is causing serious disruptions inside the politics of both France and Germany, as recent elections show. So I think what you're seeing in Spain is another variation of the kind of social upset, social desperation that this 10 years of a lost uh, economic well-being situation have provoked. So... Could you draw parallels between that and the United States? I mean, could you, would it be uh, reasonable to say that the election of Trump and, and uh, all these right-wing Republicans all over the country, uh, you know, largely on nationalistic rhetoric and, and, and very often on just pure BS, but nonetheless. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. I, would, I, would, I wouldn't just venture the idea. I'm very confident of the idea. Otherwise, you would have to chalk up to sheer coincidence the rise of the right wing in France, in Germany, uh, in, in Spain, in the central government, uh, and in other parts of, of Europe, uh, and think that that was all coincidental there, and that it was coincidental with the shift to the right represented by Donald Trump. I think Trump is a perfect example. This is the kind of politician that nearly everybody agrees wouldn't have been, couldn't have been, elected uh, in the, the 50 years before he gets elected because he's too far out there. He behaves in too erratic, irresponsible, untruthful ways. Uh, this sort of thing would have been thought to be outside the pale, just like becoming independent Catalonia was thought to be outside the pale, even though there were rumors and so forth of it. But what you see in the United States, I think, is exactly the same thing with the particularity of our history uh, and so on. But you have noises about secession, by the way, in, recently in Texas in the last few years. You've heard that kind of talk before. That sits just below the surface. There are parts of, of all of our regions that wonder out loud. I've even heard in New England recently uh, half in jest, but then again half not in jest that maybe the two coasts ought to get together and 
be in some way different from the center. And I think these are only matters of degree, not matters of, of a difference in kind, and, and they reflect the same underlying agony. The American standard of living, the American dream, is more out of reach to the mass of Americans than it has probably been in their lifetimes. And there's no sign of it coming back, and there's lots of scary signals that it may get worse for a good long while before, uh, or even if it ever gets better. And I think that is unnerving people, making them unhappy with the establishments of both the Republican and Democratic parties, bitter about the, that they didn't get from the Democratic Party what at least the Democratic Party says it committed to, and so they turn in a kind of anger against the Democratic Party, many of the people who used to vote for it, and reach to the right in the hope that somehow an unusual white person may be the solution. And just like the British working class is discovering that quitting Europe does not solve their problems, it was an expression of their anger, their bitterness uh, against the political establishment, perfectly understandable. But the solution they found for their anger and upset and their fear about where the world is going, uh, that didn't work out real well. And I am fairly convinced each day a little bit more that the voting of Americans for Mr. Trump will teach pretty much the same lesson here that it is already teaching in Great Britain. Yeah. We're about two minutes out from a break. Uh, we're talking with Professor Richard Wolf. Uh, what? Wow. How, how does this inform us in how we should react to this? Well, actually, let me take it a step beyond that. The, uh, you, you mentioned you know, all the countries in, in Europe that are suffering under this. How does that account for the rise of right-wing authoritarianism in Austria, which you know, has done fairly well, or in Denmark or in Norway? I mean, you know, there, there are right-wing movements active in these places that are that haven't been as badly hurt by the recession or is my understanding of how badly they've been hurt wrong uh well it's a little bit of both i think two things first they have been hurt even if you can get some reasonable statistics about an economy like austria that's a small country but the economy as a whole the minute you do what we call disaggregate you break it down into different parts of the population you can quickly see that the, the experience is very varied. It's, it's sort of, again, like the United States. The upper classes have recovered since the crash of 2008. The rest of us, not so much. You have that in Austria, and if you see where the support comes from, it comes from the parts of Austria which were told there would be a recovery, which were told that the government was looking out for them, which were told the jobs were coming back, and none of it panned out. And they are now desperate, and they want something different, and they'll go to the right because it's less frightening to them for the moment than going to the left. But I would warn the right wing, you are, you are stoking a fire that can just as easily veer off to the left and try to find a solution that way, especially if and when the right-wing proposals do not bring the solution that they are now over-promising with a scary kind of enthusiasm. Remarkable. Dr. Wolf, you can stick around for a little bit? I can, yes. Great. Thank you so much. I've got a few more questions about Minsky's moments in this story about China in today's okay. Financial Times. Professor Richard Wolf is with us, the economist, co-founder of Democracy at Work. We'll be back with him in just a moment. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. And the website DemocracyAtWork.info or RDWolf with two Fs.com. What Troy and uh, Louise and I like about Harry's is their amazingly high-quality shave. It's smooth and close, just how a shave should be. And Harry's passes savings along to you by selling directly over the Internet. No more frustrating drugstore trips. Harry's knows some of you guys might be skeptical of trying out a new razor brand. So instead of just telling you, Harry's wants to prove that you'll love their stuff with their free trial. They made this special free trial with everything you need to evaluate Harry's. It's customizable. You can try it for free. It's a $13 value. Someone from the Harry's team will even check in and see how your trial is going. It's 100% risk-free guaranteed. You can even call and cancel or get a refund whenever you want. So why not give Harry's a shot and judge for yourself? Head over to harrys.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M, to get it now. 
Get started with your Harry's free trial offer today. All you'll cover is just a few bucks in shipping. You get your free trial set, including the handle, blade, shave gel, and travel blade cover. Go to harrys.com. It's harrys with an S dot com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. That's harrys.com slash Tom. Don't wait. Get started with Harry's today. Welcome back. Uh, Professor Wolf, when we, when we rejoin our commercial stations in four minutes after this uh, break, we're, we're, we're on live with our nonprofit stations and with Free Speech TV and, and all that kind of thing. But when we rejoin our commercial stations, I'll recap our conversation real quickly. Um, okay. But uh, did you see the story in the, in the Financial Times this morning? Um, the uh, headline is Wall Street slips from record high as Apple falls risk off risk-off mood fueled by China debt concerns and global political uncertainty? No, because I've been traveling all day. That's, I had to rush to get here to be able to take this call on this landline. I'm up uh, in the middle of nowhere, western Massachusetts. Oh, my. Okay, well, here's, uh, here's the story, if I could just share part of it with no, you. Please. Um, the uh, a sell-off of U.S. technology stocks, most notably Apple, helped pull Wall, Wall Street's uh, main indices from record highs uh, down as uh, the broader risk environment was unsettled by fresh concerns about Chinese debt, global political developments, and disappointing corporate news. And the Chinese debt thing is, uh, the day began with a somber note as worries about excessive levels of debt in China intensified after comments from the countries, from that country's central bank regulator, Zhou Jiaoshuan, uh, on the sidelines of the 19th Communist Party Congress, warned that China's economy faced a possible Minsky moment uh, assuming he's referring to Hyman Minsky, uh, I know his son, Alan, a sudden collapse of asset prices after a long period of growth sparked by debt or currency pressures. And the Hang Seng uh, dropped 1.9 percent, the biggest one-day fall since August 11th. Shanghai Composite Index down three-tenths of a percent. And uh, so what are your thoughts on this? Well, the Minsky moment idea is about Hyman Minsky and is about his particular way of cautioning that the kinds of use of government deficits that was the way the majority of economists interpreted what uh, John Maynard Keynes had to say carried with it extraordinary risks that in the enthusiasm of pumping up an economy using deficits was being underappreciated and could come back and bite modern societies in very destabilizing ways. And he would have uh, looked at the 2008 crash, uh, starting with subprime mortgages and all the rest, as a quintessential example of what he theoretically saw coming down the pike. And he would have looked at the last 10 years, particularly in Europe, as more of that. And I think it's in everyone's mind. And since the Chinese government has spent so much of its stimulus around lending money from the government, money from the banks, which are in a sense controlled by the government anyway, that it's just a kind of normal reaction when you see the kind of debt buildup that uh, has been so troubling in Japan and Western Europe and in the United States that you see disaster around the corner. And I, it's fair enough. It is a very dangerous thing to set up your stimulus program in such a way that, yeah, you put people to work, yes, you get production going, and the Chinese have been spectacularly successful at it, but you are riding a Bronco who could at any moment veer off in one or another direction, especially because the Chinese economy has opened itself up to the rest of the world, and then those debts could come and crash down on you. And so it is not an irrational or not a fanciful anxiety. The only thing I would say on the other side is worries about Chinese debt have been endemic for the last 10 years, coupled with predictions of imminent collapse. And it's kind of hard to take that seriously now because too many times it does not prove to be the case. Welcome back. Professor Richard Wolf on the line with us. He's the economist, co-founder of Democracy at Work, author of Capitalism's Crisis Deepens, Essays in the Global Economic Meltdown. 
Professor Wolf, this is, uh, I believe today is the 30th anniversary of the of Black Monday, which was the biggest stock market crash since the Great Depression. It happened uh, a year after Ronald Reagan dropped the top tax rate uh, from 74% down to 25%, as I recall. Went back up again after that. Um, but that crash, uh, there's a lot of speculation as to what caused that and whether we're in a similar moment. You and I were just talking a minute ago about how the uh, Chinese, the, the head of the Bank of China now, the People's Bank of China, the, their, their governor just came out and warned about a Minsky moment. Hyman Minsky talking about uh, how uh, as economic growth expands as a result of stimulus, risks expand as well that can bite you in the butt. Um, was that 30, 30 years ago today, was that crash also a Minsky moment? And should we be worried about Minsky moments here in the United States? And if the Bank of China is starting to pull back on their lending policies and, and whatnot, and it seems to be affecting the market in a negative way. Uh, what does that mean for the United States and for the world economy? Well, let's go step by step. Um, Hyman Minsky was one of the greatest economists of the 20th century in the United States and deserves more appreciation than he normally gets. Uh, he was a critic of neoclassical, the dominant economics in this country, but he was also critically appreciative of the Keynesian system. In other words, he did support the idea that the government could and should intervene, that if capitalism left to its own devices uh, were to experience the kinds of crash that happened in the 1920s, uh, the lesson to be learned was don't let it be on its own. Make sure the government edges it about with rules and regulations and interventions, because if you don't, the system will self-destruct. So he went beyond that and said, yes, the government should intervene, but the way that it is doing that, namely by spending more money than it takes in, in taxes, by stimulating the economy through deficit spending, that this could raise an alarm bell, namely that, yes, you put people back to work, yes, you get the economy going again, and those, of course, are the goals. But you are accompanying that with a network of indebtedness between the corporations and people, the corporations and the government, the government and the people, and so on. And that network of rising debt can mean that a disturbance in the economy that might otherwise have been contained spreads like wildfire because nobody can honor the debts that they've incurred, and that makes a problem ten times worse than it was before. With that in mind, the answer to your question is, yes, the Chinese have used debt in the classical way. The government there borrows. It allows its banks to lend to all kinds of communities, of corporations, to get them easy, cheap money that they can then use to undertake all kinds of projects. The good result is cities get built and commodities get produced. But these debts are a kind of burden which, if something goes wrong, even if it's a relatively small thing, can spin out of control because suddenly people can't pay their debts. It's bad enough that they go out of business, that we could handle. But if they can't pay their debts, they plunge all kinds of other parts of the economy into trouble. And then it's like a wildfire that, that can't be contained. The Chinese have relied on debt. But let's make no mistake, so has the United States. When the Federal Reserve decided immediately after the crash of 2008 to bring interest rates in this country down virtually to zero and keep it there for years, what you were doing was providing very, very cheap money to anybody with an idea of borrowing it. The government borrowed like crazy to help get us out of the worst recession since the 30s, but so did many corporations take advantage of the cheap money, as did the people. We have a greater level of indebtedness uh, than almost at any time in our history as a people. And so, yes, we are also vulnerable to a small economic difficulty becoming a very, very big destabilizing one because of the webs of interconnected debt that we have allowed to build up imagining that we would never be sorry about that. And the history of Western economies, particularly over the last hundred years, 
is a screaming lesson to the contrary, that we need to be worried about it. And I think that's why the central bank in China is warning their leaders. And if we had more courage here in the United States, and there are some who are doing it, but if we had more courage, you'd hear that message much more uh, in this country, too. It ought to be coming from uh, Janet Yellen at the Federal Reserve. It ought to be coming from the whole Federal Reserve system because they are the guardians in some sense of this. But there's that uh, irrational exuberance, as Mr. Greenspan called it a while back. And we are once again uh, acting as though we didn't just go through the worst downturn since the Great Depression. It's amazing to many of us watching what the powers of denial are and how scary they are in terms of where the stock market is today, where the level of debt is today, and the very enormous vulnerability of the American economy uh, to its own out-of-control hunt after wealth, allowance of inequality, and, as you put it, this web of debt uh, that makes us remember Hyman Minsky's warnings. Yeah, it's remarkable. We just have about 15 seconds left. Are you, are you concerned about the near future or the distant future? Uh, both. I mean, yeah. I, along with everybody else, know that the typical business cycle in capitalism is four to seven years. It's been more than seven years since we had the last terrible recession, 2008 and nine. Everyone who follows the history of capitalism knows we're in for another downturn. And yeah. even if the downturn At that, is relatively I, mild... I, Professor Wolf, I'm sorry, we're, we're flat out of time. I've, oh. I've, got to, I've got to wrap it here. Thanks so much for being with us. Great talk. And thank you to, to you all for being with us today. Don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us to get out there, get active, and participate. So get out there, get active. Tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.